God works. And Tasha's taking recommendation doesn't affect one of my favorite songs. So I love that song. So put it on the list. If you have your Bible, and I hope you do, turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 7. 2 Corinthians chapter 7 is where we'll be at today. So what we're going to be at today is in 2 Corinthians, and the title of what you can see here is Sorry, Sorta. And if you're like me, when you hear that phrase, you're here, well, how can you be sorry and sorta? And we're going to hear from God's Word, what does it mean to be sorry? But if you're like me, when I hear about your sorta sorry, it's like it doesn't fit. You're either one or the other. There is no in-between. We're either sorry or we're not. And, you know, we live in a culture, we're going to talk about how does the world define sorrow. And sometimes we're going to find out God's Word's going to have a definition, and now the culture's going to have a definition, and we're going to have to figure out, well, where are we landing at in this, in this definition of sorrow? And the world defines it in so many ways. And so, so a couple of them we'll talk about, not all of these are bad, but there's just things I notice, is um, if I'm driving my car and I hit somebody on accident, or I spill my cup, or I'm at the mall, and I bump into some other shopper, we say, sorry, or excuse me. It's almost like manners, right? Being polite and kind. And I don't know if you do this. In, in my home, where I grew up, and my kids have to do the same thing, was when you're fighting with your brothers and your sisters, and your parents have had enough, and you always come to this point where they're like, you just need to say you're sorry. And if you're like me, when we were growing up, you would just look at your other brother or sister, and you're like, sorry, right? And you just try to act like you just meant it so little, right? You didn't really mean it. Under your breath, you're like, I just really hate you. I wish you weren't born. I would kill you right now if your parents weren't in between me and you right now. You didn't mean it at all, right? And so we would just say it because we had to. And parents are just trying to foster unity, and that's, that's okay. And so this also happens, I, I do this all the time at the workplace, and this is just people, right? You'll, you'll walk into people and you'll say, well, I- I'm sorry, I'm late because of so-and-so, or I'm sorry that this, I didn't hear, I didn't understand, and you say you're sorry, or you have people say, I'm sorry to interrupt, and they'll just continue to interrupt time and time and time again. And sometimes it's like, I don't know if you're asking for forgiveness or permission, but you say you're sorry as a way just to appease your behavior and deal with this. And we do this one, too. I do this one when I'm mad, when we're angry. I look at somebody, or I'm angry with my wife, and I'm like, well, I'm sorry that you feel that way. Or I'm sorry that you're mad, but, and everything you say after the but is some kind of justification for the way you treated somebody. Because you really didn't mean you're sorry. You're just trying to say it, but you're really just trying to argue with them. And and as I was putting this together, I was just... um, just praying and thinking about it. And it almost feels like this message is way too late. It's like, a, it's like this is a generation gone by. Because it's almost like we live in a world where even if we say we're sorry, we don't mean it. But nowadays, you don't have to say you're sorry anymore. It's how you identify. It's how my past experiences are, why I behave the way I do. It's all these other things. And it's like a justification for the way we behave. We don't even have to say we're sorry anymore. And it's acceptable now. And these statements, and many, many more, we see them all the time. 
But one of the good things about why we come here is we want to worship God and we want to know what God has to say and what God means. And we're going to talk about what God means about being sorrow and sorry. And we'll see this in, in 2 Corinthians where God is going to give us a contrasting of godly sorrow and a worldly sorrow. We're going to begin to see, do I have more of this or do I have more of that? And we'll answer some questions along the way. And one of the questions I think we want to answer is this. This is a hard one, but I want you to, I want you to think about it. Does our salvation, when the Holy Spirit comes on us in the lives of the church, does it produce a godly sorrow in me? Or does it look more like a worldly sorrow? When I look at my sins, do I have grief and sorrow over them? And is it different when I was first saved, if, if you've been in the faith a long time? And is my sorrow of my sins way different than it was at first as it is now? Have we gotten stale? And here's the other question. This is a hard one. But do we assume on the sacrifice of Jesus way too much so that we don't have to have sorrow over sin? And it's almost like, well, here's the gospel, and Jesus died for it, so I don't have to be sorry no more. So let's answer those questions. But if you don't mind, let me, I need to go to the Lord in prayer. We need to go to the Lord in prayer. Let's pray, prepare my mind, and prepare your hearts for this. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, I just pray to you, Lord, as the church come to you. And Lord, we want to love your word. And Lord, I pray that we would love your word more than the world around us. I pray that I would love your word more than the way I was raised sometimes. So God, I pray for, for all of us today. Lord, make your word alive in all of us today. You can do it. We need you. I need you. And Lord, let the Holy Spirit accept your words. Soften our hearts if they need to be softened. And Lord, let us receive your word in our lives today, in our marriages, in our children, in our relationships. Let us receive your word today as your church. Lord, we need you today. Lord, I pray this in your name. Amen. So we're going to be in 2 Corinthians. And just to catch us up, because I know we're just jumping right in the middle of, of this thing uh, cold. So here's what's happening. Here's the context of it. So we're in Corinth, and Paul has planted a church in the city of Corinth. It's the Corinthian church. And so let me say this. This church has struggled, just like churches we know have struggled. And so it's in the middle of a city called Corinth. And to me, Corinth is like, a, and this is mine just imagine, it's almost like a modern-day Las Vegas. It's a big city. It's a port city. A lot of people are coming and going, doing business and travel and commerce. And the city has all kinds of beliefs, customs, behaviors in it. And we know when, when, when all kinds of customs and beliefs come into an area, we know that it's typically going to be lost and dark. And there's darkness in the city of Corinth. And God plants a church in Corinth just like he plants a church in Greenville. And the church isn't just to just hang out and let's talk about Jesus a day or two a week and then get on with it. That's not what the church is supposed to be. But what happens is the church is really a what? It's a, it's a grouping of believers that have been redeemed, that have a new identity in Christ, and that they're going to live for him and glorify his name. And, and part of what that does is, right, we shine a light 
into a dark world. That's what churches do. That's what this church does. That's what the church at Corinth is supposed to do. But sometimes what happens, and it happens in our church too, is the darkness of the world permeates the church a little bit, right? We don't always magnify as much as we grab onto the, to the world around us and we don't glorify God the way we need to. And so was this church. We know many churches that struggle this way. And so Paul's planting this church, and there's all kinds of mess going around. And that's what we see in 1 Corinthians, and I'll catch you up. But some of the things that they were struggling with as a church was, obviously, sexual immorality was rampant. And so rampant, the church was like, well, I'm just going to accept it. It wasn't shamed at all. And Paul has to shepherd this church. And also we see that this church has members that were suing one another. People couldn't get along. They couldn't settle their disputes. And so they were taking themselves to pagan courts, suing each other just like any other people would. And again, Paul had to shepherd this. Also members were, or false teachers were in the church and they were rivaling God's authority. And anytime you preach the name of Jesus, people are going to have their opinions. Nope, you can do it this way, you can do it that way. This is really what you need to believe. You can believe in this, you can believe in that. And ultimately, false teachers arose. And they have challenged God's authority of his word. Paul has to address it. He has to shepherd through it. We also see idol worship pervasive in the city. So idolatry is real simple. In the world around us, this is interesting. This is necessary. This is this. I need this. I'm going to do a little bit of this. And you do all these things, and ultimately, Jesus is just another thing you do. He's not the thing you live for. That's idolatry. Church was struggling with idolatry. And we see also feminism. All kinds of things were rampant in the church. But what we know here is this. Inspired by God's word, Paul writes 1 Corinthians. He writes another letter. We'll talk about it. And he writes 2 Corinthians. And that's where we're going to be at today. And he's addressing the church. And we're going to see three things. A godly rebuke is necessary. Hopefully godly sorrow happens. And we'll see godly sanctification in their lives. So here we go. We're going to start with this first section. So before I read it, watch this now. So Paul's going to rebuke them. I've already let the cat out of the bag. So you're going to see this rebuking happening happen. And godly sorrow is really always best started with a godly rebuke. We need to remember how we handle things in a godly way. And a godly rebuke's necessary. And we know a rebuke's coming, but watch, watch the language as I read it. Paul, and watch his words that he uses. But remember this, if you think he's a gentleman by nature, remember he was killing and persecuting Christians before God changes him. So this is God's man. So, so listen as I read this first section here, starting in verse 2. Make room in your hearts for us, for we have wronged no one. We have corrupted no one. We have taken advantage of no one. So he's clearing his conscience before them. Verse 3. I do not say this to condemn you, for I have said that you are in our hearts and to die together and to live together. I am acting with great boldness towards you. I have great pride in you. I am filled with comfort in all of our affliction. I am overflowing with joy. For even when we came to Macedonia, our bodies had no rest, but we were afflicted at every turn, fighting without fear and fear within. But God, who comforts the downcast and comforted us by the coming of Titus, and not only by his coming, but also by the comfort which was he was comforted by you, and he told us of your longing, your mourning, your zeal for me, so that I rejoice still the more. 
For even if I made you grieve with my letter, I do not regret it, though I did regret it, for I see that the letter grieved you only for a while. So a couple things we'll note in this godly rebuke. The first thing to note is Paul is affirming, not condemning. He starts by affirming. He doesn't start with condemning. He says this in the top verse here that we read. I do not say this to condemn you. And watch this. He spends the rest of the section talking about his relationship with them, his love for them, his joy for them, his zeal for them, how much pride he had in being one of them. He starts this way. He doesn't start with a harsh, harsh, harsh commendation, but instead reminding the church and himself of their relationship together. And watch this, and this is just us, right? And many times when we're frustrated with people and things and instances, it's natural for us to just to do what? Let it rip. Rip into somebody, rip into the person, be rash. And really, we only focus on what? The bad stuff. And sometimes we forget all the things that we have that are good. And we also forget we're talking to a human being, don't we? We struggle this way. And, and, and here we have these mindsets, and we, hear, we say these phrases. I don't know if you've ever used them. You're probably going to imagine yourself, or you're going to picture somebody that says this. You ever, you ever heard this when stuff, stuff, friction starts happening, and somebody says this? Well, I'm just going to give them a piece of my mind, right? And they start the head weaving and the bobbing and all the attitude. And then this is one. This is, I, I've, I've done this. And men, men are the worst, so I love telling on men. They do this one. Well, I'm just going to tell it like it is. Right? You get all eager to say it, and you're almost like a bear, like, eh, right? And you, you just want to be tough, and we want to look powerful. We want to look sort of really talking to the people behind us instead of the people in front of us. And really what that means is when we come at people with this ungodly rebuke, what the message is, instead of talking about the person and the issue, I'm more interested in how I look, and really I'm sort of sitting off of trying to look cool for the people behind me. But here's what's important. We see this in Ephesians 4.15. When we speak truth, when we will talk about truth, a Christian's supposed to speak it in love. Supposed to speak our truth in love. And we see this in Ephesians 4.15. This is, um, this is the unity chapter of the Bible, I think. God's talking to the church of Ephesus, and he talks to them, and, and after he's laid all this theology down, and he says, hey, this is how we address one another, Ephesians 4.15. Rather, speaking the truth in love, we are to grow in every way into him who is the head into Christ. We need to speak in love. We need to speak as Jesus would speak. Not on our own, not for our own wishes and our own desires, but the way God would have us. And we see the second part of this is, this is the truth part. It is godly to address sin and to not ignore it and so we see here at the top of this letter paul is almost wondering should i have written this letter look at this this verse i'll read it again and it's just not even written well and you can almost tell he's sort of conflicted on what he wanted he didn't really want to say it but he had to say it it's hard to say this stuff but watch this in verse eight for even if i made you grieve with my letter i do not regret it though i did regret it which is odd for I see that the letter grieved you only for a while. Haven't we all, in the midst of having to address issues, we sent a letter, popped over the email, sent the text, and as soon as you sent it, you're like, oh, man. 
I was a lot more confident when I was talking to myself, thinking it out. But the minute it goes, you have second guesses and second thoughts. Maybe that wasn't the best idea. Maybe it's not going to land the way it needs to. And Paul is struggling right now with this, this conflict that he's having to address. But ultimately, he comes to this conclusion. He's going to believe in the truth. He's going to believe in the truth, which is God. And he leans on that more than his own feelings on the matter. But watch this. Here's what's important about telling truth. We never love somebody by not telling them the truth. It's never the way to go. And Paul will tell them the truth. All the things I mentioned earlier, he rebukes them correctly. We're going to talk about the, the sorrow to come. But he leans on the truth ultimately. And oftentimes we do this. I find myself struggling with this. Is You let people go on and on and on. And you're really sort of saying to yourself, I love them too much to hurt them. I feel that way towards people in my life. But that's really a self-deceptive statement, isn't it? Because really, really what you're doing is, I don't want to hurt myself in them. I don't want to hurt them, but I don't want to hurt my thing with them. I don't want to hurt my relationship. I want to keep my place good. Right? And we do that. But here's the reality of this. We want people to love us and to be happy with us. But here's the thing. The Christian has to pursue righteousness before he or she worries about the relationship. We are relationship people, but we are righteous first. And the reason why godly rebuke is important is for the next section. We're going to spend a lot of time here. So there's a godly sorrow to come. And this is the section we're going to spend some time on. So watch this in verse 9. Let's read it. As it is, I rejoice, not because you were grieved, but because you were grieved into repenting. For you felt the godly grief, so that you suffered no loss through us. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without, regard, without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. So you see the word grief, and you can almost substitute sorrow. Two words, same thing. But what's the ultimate goal of godly sorrow? one thing repentance and we're going to define repentance in a minute but sometimes i think we mess that word up we don't understand it totally i don't but watch this if our objectives are anything other than than repentance you'd be dead wrong in how you're acting and how you're behaving and you need to repent yourself of your motives so our our motives aren't to win an argument you ever been in that with somebody? It's all about just winning the argument, winning the, winning the debate. It's also not to be right. Trying to deal with people that live to be right is draining. It's not Christian. And it's also not to make people feel bad about themselves. That's not the goal of this. It says here in the verse 9, you can see it now. I wrote, not that you were grieved, but he says that you were grieved into repentance. But the goal is repentance, not to make people feel bad. We don't, we don't hit on people to make them feel bad. Our goal is repentance, and we're going to talk about that in a moment. But that's all that matters. There's nothing more and nothing less than godly sorrow is repentance. So let's talk about what is repentance then. What does that mean to us? And so repentance is an action that you take. But here's the difference. For the Christian, it's an action that we take to turn to God in faith. We have faith in God and his ways. 
So for a Christian, it's got to be in God's ways. And we see from these verses, I'm not going to read them, but you see that, watch this, repentance and salvation are going to be sort of uh, juxtaposed against one another. And we see here from these verses from Jesus, from John the Baptist, from the apostles, that saving faith to oneself, to Jesus, is almost always associated with repentance in the word. Have faith and believe. Repent, believe. Follow God, believe, repent. It's almost always followed. It's never one without the other. And we see this repentance connected to salvation. And repentance leads us to salvation. But in this verse, it's not necessarily about salvation from sin we're talking about. But we're saved from ourselves. So we don't earn our salvation. We won't lose our salvation if I don't repent. That's not, that's not, that's not what we're talking about. But the salvation that's in the verse above is we're saved from doing things ourselves, doing things our way. When I repent from my ways to God's ways, I'm saved from thinking about things my own ways, and I'm delivered from always trying to live life trying to figure out how things ought to be done. And boy, is that a relief for those of us who've been doing it our way, and now we do it God's ways. How much easier is life? And some of us think, if, if I feel sorry for what I've done, well, that's really repentance. A lot of times you... If I feel bad about something, that's enough. But the Bible would say, no, it's not. That's not repentance. Feeling bad for what you've done and feeling sorry isn't repentance. It is the grief and the pain of what you've done and turning away from it. And suddenly, watch this, you become aware of something that's always been hidden in yourself. Something that's been wrong about yourself that you've not been able to see, but now you see it. And it is that moment like of a self-awareness of ourselves, and you change because of it. And that is life. That is the life for us. So many of us probably have a testimony of where I was behaving in a way, I was wrong, I had sorrow over it, and now I'm changed, and I'm free. So watch this. What's worldly sorrow look like? Well, let's talk about that one. So, so godly sorrow looks like something, but what's the worldly sorrow look like? It could look a lot like godly sorrow in some ways. It can lead to remorse. I can feel bad about what I've done. Worldly sorrow can lead me to being upset, embarrassed, consequences. I can tell lies and cheat. I get caught in my lies and I get caught cheating. It's embarrassing. It's uncomfortable. Now people around me don't trust me, struggle with me. But here's the thing. I don't really hate that I broke God's commandments, do I, if I just have worldly sorrow. I don't really care that I lied and cheated. I just care and I hate the consequences of it. I don't really hate the shame that I put on the name of Jesus. I just hated all the stuff I had to endure because of my behavior. And so worldly sorrow, it can lead us to a temporary change. When the dust settles, sometimes we'll not go back, and sometimes we might. I don't know. But ultimately, we know this worldly sorrow never leads us to God. It always leads us back to our self. That's all that worldly sorrow ever does. Never leads us to God. And, and we know this. Leading back to ourselves, we are dead in our trespasses. But watch this, those outside of God, those who don't know him, if you don't know him, you will never, ever feel anything but worldly sorrow, if that. 
Outside of God, no one can ever feel the sorrow drawn from sinning against our holy God, our holy, our holy Lord who has saved us and died for us. I want to take a moment to contrast two sorrows, two kings, King Saul and King David, the first two kings of Israel. So we see here the first one, I'm just going to read it. Um, I'm going to skip around some verses. So we're going to be in 1 Samuel chapter 15. I'm going to start up in verse 1. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord has sent me to anoint you king over his people, Israel. Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child, infant, ox, sheep, camel, and donkey. Kill them all. Verse 9. But Paul, excuse me, but Saul and the people of spared Agog and the best of the sheep and of the oxen, of the fattened calves, and of the lambs, and all that was good they would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless they devoted to destruction. So they kept the stuff that they could use, and the stuff that was no good, they obeyed, sort of. Verse 14. And Samuel said, What is this bleeding of the sheep I hear in my ears, and the lowering of the oxen I hear? And watch this great king. They have, then Saul says, they have brought from them the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen and the sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we devoted to destruction. Blame him. Verse 34. And Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned and transgressed for the commandment of the Lord, your words and deeds, because the people I feared and obeyed their voice. Now, therefore, please pardon my sin and, and, and return with me that I may bow before the Lord. Then he said, I have sinned, but watch this, yet honor me now before the elders and of my people before Israel and return with me that I may bow down before the Lord your God. That's worldly sorrow. But what's godly sorrow look like? Let's talk about King David. So King David, um, second Kings, man after God's own heart, right? He, um, this, this psalm is written after he, it's a famous psalm, many of you know it, Psalm 51. He has um, had an affair with Bathsheba. He has had her husband murdered or set him up to be murdered, whatever you want to look at it. He's misused his power. He's been caught. And watch his reaction. You almost say his sin is greater than the other sin. From one king to the other king. But watch his reaction. Have mercy on me, O God. According to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly. Wash me from my inequity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you and only you have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me, I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear the joy 
and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my inequities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Both kings confronted with their sin, but totally different sorrows and totally different reactions, right? The worldly king does what? He blames the people. He claims that it was really them, even though he never was afraid of them. He was never afraid to rule in any way he wanted, but he blames, shifts them. And then at the very end, when he's confessing or whatever you call that, he says, honor me in front of the people, though. Let me save face. Don't make me look too bad. Don't take me all the way down. So the, the godly sorrow of King David was, does what, on the other hand? He takes full responsibility of his sin, and he states that his sin was against God. No one else is involved. And he pleads with God, not to just, please don't just forgive me, God, but bring me back. Bring me back to what I once was. And this is the difference in a worldly sorrow and a godly sorrow. And we need this. Um, you know, I, I love the Word of God. I love getting into the theology and taping together the salvation and repentance and sorrow. But if we don't live it out practically, it sort of falls short. It doesn't mean as much if we don't live it out. So to help, help me and to help us in a personal application... I'm going to share something personal to, between my wife and myself. Um, and she's already signed off on this stuff, so she's good sharing it. So if it weirds you out, if not weird us out, we're good. But um, when we first got married, I think we've been married 20 years, Penny came to me early in our marriage and said, Tara, I, there's something that I'm, I'm struggling with with you. Your relationship with other women makes me very uncomfortable at work. So where I work is um, it's a white-collar job, Blue Cross. Many of you know it. I have a lot of meetings. I go to a lot of places, do a lot of trips, deal with a lot of people, eat a lot of food, do a lot of stuff. And when she was telling me this, I'm looking at her. I'm just trying to, uh, to take it all in. In my mind, I'm thinking, well, you just need to quit nagging. You need to get over it. She's being a baby. And you know what, if, if my friends found out, they would think, well, my wife's just got me whooped. I don't want to sit here and deal with this stuff. So I, I did acquiesce to her, her, her needs. I certainly didn't tell her any of that stuff I just said. I kept that to myself. But I did what she asked. And so I would just hang out with the fellas. I laid off the ladies. If we had a meeting that I couldn't avoid, I'd let her know. And so we did this thing, this, this weird thing. And so then a couple years later, uh, our life went on. We're doing good. Our marriage is fine. And a couple years later, you know, we're at our other church before we came here. This was a long time ago. And we, we've always loved being in the church and participating in our church. And so I get called to be on the finance committee because I can add, I guess. Right? And she gets to be on the personnel committee because she's got more personality, I guess. And so, so I'm on the finance committee, she's on the personnel committee, I'm doing the boring stuff, and we're hiring an associate pastor. And she's on the committee that's looking for this person. And so it's funny, there, she's on the committee with other people, 
and they're doing whatever they're doing. And so there's this one other guy on the committee that I just, I just didn't like. I just thought he was a chump. I didn't have anything to do with the guy. wasn't the person that I wanted to hang around with. And so she would come home, and she would talk about this committee and be like, oh, I'm on the committee, and me and so-and-so, and me and so-and-so. And I'm sitting there thinking, wait a minute. I can't even talk to somebody. You're talking to this guy? What is up with this? What's wrong with this? Of course, I didn't tell her that. But anyway, that's what was going on in my heart. And so later that Christmas, this Christmas morning, we're doing all the present thing. The kids are just crazy. And usually about the end of Christmas, you know, Ken and I will give ourselves a gift. And kids are like, Dad, open your gift. And here it is. So I got this box. It's a shoe box. And um, I open it. It's a pair of shoes. And for those of you who know me, I like to look a certain way. could be a little arrogant or snobby. But anyway, I opened the shoes, and I looked at her, and the shoes didn't look like the kind of shoes I would wear. And so I pushed the box over to her in front of all the kids, and I'm like, well, I'm not wearing this stuff. You're going to take this thing back. I ain't having it. And so obviously the, she's embarrassed and ashamed. The kids are like, that doesn't look normal. That looks a little bit crazy. So it's an awkward day, and we're celebrating the birth of Jesus. So, like, it's the best day you're supposed to have, and you have this moment. And so we get through that. Um, I do come to my wife and say, hey, I, I, uh, I need you to forgive me. I blew it. I'm sorry for that. That was just ridiculous. I can't believe I did it. And ultimately, we got through that situation. But here's the difference. Here's, here's the point of this whole, whole, whole thing. She did not buy any shoes later. About 14 years later, we do have shoes now. So, so we're all good. We all still love each other. I got new shoes now. So we got past this issue in our marriage. But here's the issue. I had sorrow over what was happening. And I did repent. But it was as worldly as you could possibly be. I didn't feel bad to God for anything I was doing to my wife. How I was making her feel. I didn't really care about how I was making God look in any of it. And here's what's interesting. This is how God works. A couple years ago, we were going through the elder process. And, um, you know, that's a weighty process when you have to go through that. It's weird. Adam, can, he can speak to it on his own. We're talking about all this stuff and above reproach. And you're like, I don't know. I, I don't know about that stuff. It's hard. It's hard. And, and, and we were going to a volleyball game with, for Abigail, and we were traveling in the car. And I just I remember thinking, and I, t- I talked to her, and I said, I, I am so sorry for the way I made you feel. I couldn't see it then. I couldn't see. I didn't really care how I was making you feel. But I am so sorry for how I made you feel because God put our marriage together and I was shaming you and hurting you. And ultimately, my, my sorrow was to God because God is the one who gave me these things. And ultimately, my sin and my shame and my need was to come to him. And we did have godly sorrow eventually. So, so here's the thing for us, though, right? I need it and you need it. We need sorrow in our life with things. And it's not just feeling bad about things. And it's not just getting upset and feeling bad about the consequences that are coming my way. And it's not about comparing things to others and saying, well, this one wasn't so bad, so I'm not as bad as this person, so I don't need to feel as bad. We need a godly sorrow for how we are. And we need to repent biblically. We need to see what we do and our failures as an offense to God, because they are. 
And we need to place our faith in him and walk in his ways. And guess what? The people around us will be loved the way God wants them to be loved. Because we are in Christ. So let's talk about the last part of this. What is godly sanctification part of this? How does that play into this? Godly rebuke happens. Then I have godly sorrow. Hopefully I repent correctly. But how do I know it's real? So let's read this section here, verse 11. For what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you? Also what eagerness to clear yourselves, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in the matter. So all that I wrote to you, it was not for the sake of the one who did the wrong, but for the sake of the one who suffered the wrong. But in order that your earnestness for us might be revealed to you in the sight of God, therefore we are comforted. Folks, there are some clear-cut indications whether we have a godly grief or a godly sorrow or a worldly sorrow. How do you react? How do you react? In the case of these Corinthians, they reacted with a reversal of their behavior. Okay? So, so we don't see that now, but they're going to reverse their behavior. And he says this, how earnestly, Paul says, they wanted to be free from this sin and the whole problem in their lives. How eager they were to be completely clear and to clean up all areas wrongdoings. And we see this eagerness and this earnestness, and it's like, I want this over with. I want this done. I want my slate clean with you and God. That's the sanctification that we want. But here's what happens when we don't want godly sanctification in our lives. You ever heard this one? Or do you respond this way when, when friction or sorrow hits you? It's like, well, let's drop the matter. I'm done talking about this. I've already said I'm sorry, let it go. I've admitted my wrong, now let's forget about it. We have that. It's not the Lord sin over somebody, but listen, we need to fully have sorrow and sanctification over our sin. We need to have holiness and we need to clear it out. Not shorten it so that we don't have to sit there in it. Get it over with, get it addressed, and move on with your life. That's what these people are doing. You see that in this Corinthian church. They want the whole story out. They want this to be clear. Let me conclude with this. This is something else. I'm going to say this again. This is a hard one. I don't even know if some of this stuff is correct, but we're just going to go for it. When I was growing up in the 80s and the 90s, I grew up in a church, and I was very lucky to grow up in the family I grew up in, in the church I grew up in back in Kentucky. And we would, um, I would listen to the messages as much as I could, and I would never, ever, ever hear a message about homosexuality. I don't think I ever heard one. And it's sort of weird because I, I, I don't even, like, outside of Boy George, I don't even know if I knew a gay person in Kentucky. Um, just didn't know. Nobody talked about it. But you know what I heard a ton from the pulpit? Fornication. Don't be sleeping around. That was the sexual immorality that was preached all the time back then for me. And let me say this. If you ever caught somebody shacking up, which is code for living together with somebody that wasn't your husband or wife, that would be like the, oh my gosh, they're shacking up, right? 
and you would, you would sort of, that would be the thing that you would react to. And it's weird how the, how the generations have gone on and on and life has changed. And guess what? Now homosexuality and LGBTQ and all this stuff is way more common and we hear way more from our pulpits about this topic. But here's the problem. Here's the problem I want to talk about. When I read my Bibles, maybe 20 years I've been reading my Bible pretty well, I see these eerie lists right above me. I see them all throughout the New Testament. These are just a couple examples. I'm not going to read them. You can jot them down. But here's what sort of weird, like spooks me out about these lists. It says, these people, these things will not inherit the kingdom of God. And da, 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 list them out. You see them up here. And it's not even written by one author. It's not just Paul being inspired by God to write it. It's other people that are writing it. It's all throughout the New Testament church. And you want to know what bothers me about this? We don't preach about the rest of the list, do we? It's almost like we hang out at the top of the list and talk about sexual morality all my life. And from the pulpit, we'll preach on it. And I'm totally good preaching on it. We should preach against LGBTQ. We should preach against homosexuality. We should preach against sleeping outside of marriage. We should preach on those things. Amen? Everybody would agree with that. But we don't seem to preach on the things at the bottom of the list. And as a result, it doesn't feel like we have the same sorrow and the same zeal as the other ones. Because those are the things that we do in here. And it's almost like we do this. This isn't biblical, but this is almost feels like it's real. It almost feels like we do this. Well, I'm saved. I got faith in Jesus. And from here on out, as long as I avoid the big ones at the top of the list, Jesus died for the ones at the bottom of the list. And I don't have to feel sorry for those. I don't have to repent over those. Because that's what Jesus does for me. And as long as I hang out off the top of the list, that's what it is. That's not biblical. That's not godly. But that feels like that's real in our lives, or at least the people that I know. And here's what hurts me about this. This is what hurts me about this. When I see people living that way, and I see that in my own life, this continual sins that I allow in my life and have no shame and no sorrow over, I look around, and here's what I see. I see families in the church, just like Corinth, in the church that hate each other. I see in-laws that can't stand one another in the church, open, no shame, no condemnation, accepted in the church. I see, I see people that put stuff on social media, airing out, airing out dirty laundry, for everybody to see. Inviting the gossip hounds with their little blue check marks, check, 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 amen, preach it. Using God's name for that stuff, and it's accepted, and it's in the church, and it's not shame. And we don't feel anything wrong about it. And I see people that live their lives, take all their resources, and entertain themselves to the gills. Go here, eat this, watch this, this event, spend it all on my kids. And when your church needs help or when a brother and sister's in need, I, you know, I just got no money, I'm broke. Openly accepted in the church. 
No shame. For no sorrow. Because that's the stuff at the bottom of the list. Rivalries, enmity, strife, greed, gossip. Those are the things at the bottom of the list. It's like that Jesus dies for those, and I don't have to repent of them. And the question is that we come into this is, why don't we feel godly sorrow and worldly sorrow the same for all our sins? God has it in his word for a reason. But we have good news. And here is the good news. This world has its king, and they have their sorrow, and this is all they'll ever have. But we have a better king. We have Jesus as our king. And our king did this and said, I look down on these people and I see the mess that they're in. And I'm going to come and I'm going to live and I'm going to stay righteous. I'm going to stay right and I'm going to die for them and I'm going to save them. And I'm going to give them a new heart. And I'm going to give them a new spirit. And I'm going to let them know that they can live and they're going to live for me now. And we live for him. And we glorify his name. We don't worry about this world. And we know in our hearts that we have a new home. This world is not our home. And God gives us that insight. And now we should have a godly sorrow to live for him in all of our ways. So I'm going to ask this question that we started at the beginning. Does Jesus' sacrifice on the cross save me so that I don't have to worry about the sins on the back of the list? Does all the sins do I have shame and sorrow over? And the answer needs to be, never let it be in this church. We don't need that. It is good to have a godly sorrow. It is freeing to have a godly sorrow. We don't lose anything off a godly sorrow. We are being transformed into the image of our king. So let's have a godly sorrow for all the sins in our lives, all the sins in our family, not just the ones at the top of the list. Amen? Let's go to the Lord in prayer.